Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 5, Episode 24 of People's Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. I did a, a 700-page thesis, and Manuth actually made me take out two chapters because their criticism was that it was too long. <laughs> Not that it was like torture for other people to read this 700-page <laughs> thesis on my mad ramblings on, um, on the intervention. But at, at the end of that, we showed that um, we could raise human intelligence with derived relational responding. So, I mean, it was pretty, pretty exciting. that, And we, um, we wrote the first paper demonstrating that we could raise IQ with relational frame yeah. theory. Yeah, so it's, it, this, this was a fundamental shift in how we think about human intelligence. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. P-Supers, we're continuing our chat with Dr. Sarah Cassidy, educational child and adolescent psychologist and author Sarah has co-written an extraordinary book called Tired of Anxiety, a kid's guide to befriending difficult thoughts and feelings and living your life anyway. So in this episode, we learn about the behavioral roots of the book. You'll hear how Sarah discovered relational frame theory, or RFT, and acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT, and how she's using ACT to support her staff using a training protocol designed by me and my mate, Paul Flaxman. Hashtag Flaxintosh, hashtag Flaxivibes. We'll also hear Sarah's views on labels and her song choice. People Soup is an award-winning podcast where we share evidence-based behavioural science in a way that's practical, accessible and fun to help you glow to work a bit more often. Let's just scoot over to the news desk because I'm delighted to announce that I'll be running an Act in the Workplace Train the Trainer course in April and May next year. It will be over four sessions in partnership with Joe Oliver at Contextual Consulting and you'll find a link to all the details in the show notes. Also, an update on the live summer series of People's Soup podcast recordings. By the time this lands, we'll have welcomed our first guest. First up, was Dr. Sarah Swan talking about her amazing book, Coping with Breast Cancer. Our second live guest will be Dr. Richard McKinnon, who'll be talking about loneliness at work. So come and join us and hear all about his research on how we can connect and thrive. And that's on the 28th of July. Free tickets via the link in the show notes. And finally, reviews are in for part one of my chat with Sarah. Donna May Linton on Facebook said, Fabulous episode. Looking forward to the next two. Roberta Hines on Facebook said, Dr. Cassidy is hands down one of the most influential speakers on mental health for children and adolescents. It is a privilege to work alongside of her. Amy Russell on Facebook said, Some poolside listening. Very proud of my friend and mentor, Sarah O'Connor Cassidy. Incredibly talented and a genuine human being. And on the Twitter, our friend Duncan Gillard said, One of the very best speaking here. Twitter EPs, if you want to know how to truly make the world a better place, this is one Ed Syke I'd advise you to listen to. Hashtag legend. Well, thank you so much to everyone who listened, shared and rated part one of my chat with Sarah. Your support is what makes the PeopleSoup community so special. So please do keep listening and sharing and letting me know what you think. If you make some noise about the podcast and our guests, we'll reach more people with stuff that could be useful. For now, get a brew on. And have a listen to part two of my chat with Dr. Sarah Cassidy.
I want to change tack slightly and talk about relational frame theory mm -hmm. and ACT, but when did you first come across it? They're so closely connected. So relational frame theory, I came across RFT kind of by accident. I had wanted to, so I had been working as an educational psychologist for the National Ed Psych Service in Ireland, and I was living and working in rural Kerry. And mostly what I was doing was educational assessments. Mostly what I was doing was, was diagnosing intellectual disability, um, emotional behavioral difficulty, dyslexia, things like that going around schools in Ireland and, and making those diagnoses. And I was really frustrated because it felt like that's all I was doing uh, was the diagnosis. And, and by the way, I know like within, sometimes within behavior analysis or within um, this field, sometimes we can be quite anti-labeling. And you know, just for the record, I'm not anti-labeling. You know, I, I think sometimes I can be really, really helpful, in fact, to say, here's, here's our case conceptualization here's what I think is happening for a person. And this is a really good starting point for our intervention. And I think if the shoe fits and it's useful to wear it, let's put it on, you know, let's, let's name what this experience is. And, and let's say, you know, here's a useful way for us to go forward for this person. And what I've found is with labeling, whether it is dyslexia, whether it's autism, whether it's ADHD, I found that for a lot of people, that's an enormous relief to them to say, no, you're not stupid no, you're not crazy. You know, here is a useful label uh, or, or a way of collecting your experiences in a way that makes sense for you. And so just for the record, in case people are saying, should I give my child or my adult or, you know, is it useful or helpful to give this label? Mm. I usually say, yes, it is actually. And that's been my experience. I have very limited experience, but I have friends of my age with children and Two, no, three of them, their children have gone through an assessment and they've got a label and they found it's anecdotal, but they found it super, super helpful. So that explains why this and that. Yeah. So that explains this behavior or, or that reaction to that event. Yeah. Yeah. And they found it super useful for the family jigsaw. Yep. And also adults. So I know a lot of your listeners are, are adults rather than kids or they could be adults or, or parents. Um, so some of them will later go back. And if they do have kids, they will then have these questions. Well, what about me? If my kid has X, Y, and Z going on, what is that saying about me? And what's that saying about you is your kid didn't get that thing <laughs> from nowhere. Mm -hmm. So it might also help explain something for you. So sorry, Ross, I, I, I kind of went on a, a tangent there. What was our original question? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Discovering RFT. Yeah. And so I was going to go back and, and do a, um, a PhD and I had kind of landed on more. I wanted to do use more behavioral approaches because I wanted to do more intervention. And I was really frustrated that all I seemed to be doing in my job as an educational psychologist and I was quite happy to be working in the education system, but I was really frustrated that I just seemed to be doing assessment, 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 and I didn't seem to be doing any treatment. And I don't know if that was, you know, just Ireland at the time, like Ireland at the time, I, I suppose we had really come through a period of recession and we all of a sudden had a little bit of money and we had these enormous backlogs where people just hadn't received assessment for so long. So I probably a lot of it was a function of that, but 
there just didn't seem to be any intervention. And I was so frustrated with that. And I, I kind of happened upon um, Brian Roach. And um, I, I was just talking about how I'd been working with a few kids and I had just had sort of speculation, you know, well, if, what if we did some of these things? And, and I mean, I, I didn't know about relational frame theory, but I just had a few speculations. If we did, you know, some of these things, when kids seem to be getting better at some of the things I was sort of speculating about, if we did some of these things, and it seemed to be having an impact on some of their intellectual skill sets. So I was having these sort of idle conversations and knew a little bit about behavior analysis or about behavioral approaches. And I had a few uh, meetings with Brian Roach. And after our first meeting, it was supposed to be an hour long meeting. We wound up talking for about three hours. And my dad was actually, this was quite funny because my dad was minding my son, Patrick, at the time who was Patrick was about three and um, they were walking around the parking lot outside of uh, Brian Roach's office. I'll never forget it because my dad was very patiently walking around the parking lot, holding Patrick's hand. And Patrick was um, just uh, walking along the curbs for three solid hours while Brian Roach and I hash, hashed this out. And, um, and by the end of it, Brian had me talked into doing a PhD in relational frame theory and human, human intelligence and so that was it. And I did a, a 700 page thesis and Manuth actually made me take out two chapters because their criticism was that it was too long. <laughs> Not that it was like torture for other people to read this 700 page <laughs> thesis on my mad ramblings and, um, on the intervention. But at, at the end of that, we showed that um, we could raise human intelligence with derived relational responding. So, I mean, it was pretty, pretty exciting that, and we, um, we wrote the first paper demonstrating that we could raise IQ with relational frame yeah. theory. Yeah, so it's, it, this, this was a fundamental shift in how we think about human intelligence. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. Pioneering, groundbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that's the, so that's raiseyouriq.com. I'll make sure this link's in the show notes. Great, and, yeah. yeah. And like I say, spoke about it a bit with Shane yeah. as well. And, and you should but, get Brian and Elle on as well we're about to we're going to launch an app and that's coming up very soon so there'll be ah, very cool things happening there too right and and fair play to brian for carrying on for for working with you and well, for you working to... with me <laughs> no that didn't come out the right way Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> for many years yeah <laughs> i'm what i was trying to articulate was was working with you to over that three-hour meeting to oh, say, yeah, I know. I'm going to do a PhD. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I know, it's funny because actually I didn't know about RFT and I had, uh, he'd asked me in that meeting, did I know about RFT? And, and I, I honestly didn't, but I, I kind of wanted to say, yeah, because RFT was like a really niche area in behavior analysis. And I really wanted to say, yes, I didn't want to tell a lie because, you know, I'm quite precise in how I do things and I really didn't want to tell this man a lie and uh, I was kind of like yes and all I'd really done was google RFT mm. so I was kind of like I've heard of it <laughs> um, but anyway by the end of it by the end of it I knew knew RFT fairly well fantastic so that did lead me into act because I did want to do um, and I and I so I studied act during my PhD because actually everybody who was in Maynooth at that time, whether you liked it or not, you were going to be doing some ACT. And so while Brian wasn't that super into ACT at that time, everybody, well, I won't say everybody else in the department, but a lot of other people in the department at that time were studying ACT. So I studied ACT with others in the department at that time. Yeah, so I, I was simultaneously studying ACT 
and mm. did act all, all four years, did a lot of training and act during that time. Wow. And it's a question I touched on during the intro, but how do you fit all this in? You know, it, it's this has only recently become an interesting question to me because I actually did not know until very recently that I was actually doing more than other people. I actually genuinely never knew that. And um, Ian Tyndall, my very good friend, and I think you know Ian Tyndall, is a, is a very, very good friend of mine. And he always makes comment on how much I do. And I've only recent, relatively recently discovered that I, I'm a neurodivergent person. And I've never been a person that sleeps a lot. In fact, never my whole life. My mom would tell stories about this. And uh, I do remember like when I was a very, very small kid, my granny taking over, trying to put me to sleep when I was about three years old and my younger brother came along. And you probably remember me making reference to, you know, my mom carrying me around on her hip for years and years because I just, I just never, ever, ever slept. And to this, this day, this isn't a healthy thing. It'll, it'll probably give me Alzheimer's or something, you know, later in my life. But luckily, Raise Your IQ is now being used with Nanny Presti's lab as um, using it to treat Alzheimer's in, in Italy. So hopefully my research will later help me later on help me in life. Um, but, you know, Ian Tyndall would often say, make reference to that, you know, I'm doing more than everybody else. But I actually never realized that I might be doing more things in the hours of my day that other people are doing. But I, I wonder, is this part of like a neurodivergent brain thing where I'm doing more things with the hours in my day? And, and I think this might be part of neurodivergence where, you know, you have sort of like the tendrils of where your interest goes and because my interest goes lots of places, and because I tend to sleep less than most people, I, I actually don't have an answer to that question. I think I just follow my interests and where my interests mm -hmm. bring me, I, I follow those interests and I follow them until they're done. And, you know, I think because my, my father instilled in me, when do you finish a job? Or like, when is a job finished? Well, it's finished when it's done. Like that's, that's what the answer is. It's finished when it's done. So like if I make a commitment to something... I finish doing it when it is finished. And mm. so I don't know if that answers your question, but like I, I continue to do a job until I have finished that job. And I, and I make too many commitments because if you say to me, Sarah, will you do this thing? And I say, yes, that's really interesting or that's really important. And so I will do it. That was, that was my follow-up question. Do you ever say no? That has been something that's been really difficult for me to do. I am learning the art of saying no. But it's been really difficult for me because if something feels important to me, if it feels important to me, I tend to say yes to it. Mm. But I am learning in the interest of self-preservation to start to say no. Good. I think it's a skill a lot of humans could could work on developing. Yeah. And it, I had a wry smile when there was an observation from Ian, who's a very good friend of the show, um, asked you how you how you get so much stuff done when I see him as someone who I know who is quite prolific mm. in in research and all his activities yeah wow I know he's amazing absolutely now I was speaking to a mutual friend of ours Ariana Prudenzi yes. earlier yeah. this week and she was saying how you're training your practice in the Boston practice mm -hmm. in the protocol that me and Paul Flaxman developed. Flaxintosh, yeah. Flaxintosh. <laughs> so I'm just curious how 
How is that going? It's amazing so far. Yeah. So what I, I, I'm so glad that you brought that up because you've been actually big on my mind because we're, we're actually using your protocols right now. So uh, thank you for bringing it up. What has happened? You, you know about NACOA, um, the New England Center for OCD and Anxiety. And you, we've, you know, we haven't really, we actually, actually haven't talked too much about the book, but myself and our team are doing this New England Center for OCD and Anxiety. And it struck me that in all that we're doing with our, our new service, and we're seeing all these children and families with high rates of anxiety, and we're asking our staff to you know, train up quickly and see children and families with much higher rates of anxiety and to do ERP with them and learn these new testing tools. And I thought, gosh, their rates of anxiety, their, our staff rates of anxiety, stress, burnout are bound to be a lot higher than normal. And how are they going to cope? You know, how are they going to cope with their own high rates of stress, mental health and stress and burnout whilst treating all these children, families? And I thought, gosh, I've talked to my friend Ariana a fair bit about this and I knew about the work that she was doing and I knew loosely about your role in this and, and I knew about Paul Flaxman and Frederick Livheim and, and Bonds I knew about the, that book and so I thought god I wonder could I um, put our team through this you know wouldn't that be cool because I suppose it sits in well with the, the way I the way I view the world and I care a lot about our employee mental health and well-being too. So we are two sessions in. So we've had four hours of uh, we've had four hours of flex and tosh, and uh, we're we're collecting data. So I'll, I'll be able to tell you more at the end. But we're calling it um, weaving transatlantic safety nets. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool because the thing is we are, you know, the New England Center for OCD and Anxiety, the Irish Midlands. We're taking a lot of supervision from the Boston team. There's also a New York team and there's an LA team. And so I'm, you know, leading your I'm leading your your intervention and I'm delivering it to the Boston team and our Irish team and the LA team are watching it asynchronously and, and um, the New York team are, are watching it asynchronously as well. And wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the, Oh, that's super. Yeah. So I made it, I made a few like just small tweaks. Like if there are, um, if there are things that kind of fit more for our team or, you know, for our service, but so far, um, everybody's really, really happy and, um, mm. really, I think getting a lot out of it and Super. we'll report back. But I mean, really, I just think it's so important because we're working with a lot of families that themselves have a huge amount of stress and, and anxiety, of course. And if, if our staff are taking phone calls, our staff are, are bound to be absorbing a huge amount of that stress and anxiety. So how can they cope with that if they themselves have got high rates of stress and anxiety? And that's what the data shows us, that men mental health workers will have high, ra high rates of, of stress mm. and burnout. So, so we need to help them cope so that oh. they, can carry, they can carry that. It's such important work, and I'm delighted to hear how it's, how it's going down. So 
And we also always encourage people to make it their own. There'll be contextual factors that won't land. So mm. change it. Yeah. We The reason we give such a sort of step-by-step guidance is for those who are perhaps feeling a little bit less confident. Yeah. Making it your own is so important. And we're working with uh, Uganda at the moment, Roscoe and Kamisi. Cool. And they're doing a systematic adaptation of the protocol for a Ugandan audience. And that's Amazing. just firing off everything for me because I often go into an organization like a big hospital and think, how can we reach more people with these skills? Yeah. Maybe people who maybe don't relate or don't resonate with metaphors or maybe who people who English isn't their first language. How can we get this to a level that it becomes useful for, for more and more people? Yeah. And I was talking to a hospital with, with Flaxintosh, we're talking to a hospital in Sunderland, and they were really interested in how they could adapt it for a neurodivergent audience. So there's lots of yeah. adaptations going on. That seems to be our theme for ongoing work of the, the, the protocol is how can we adapt it? And I'm looking how we adapt it for shorter interventions, maybe to get people with some skills mm. and maybe funnel them into the longer program. Well, talk to me, talk to me as much as you want about neurodivergence. I will. I mean, I, I, my, my expertise is kind of based on Google. Okay. So yeah, but once I've got a clearer idea, I, I will take you up on that mm -hmm. because absolutely, I think I want to sort of democratize the, yeah. the access to these skills that are so important. So Sarah, a question I ask all my guests is for a song choice that would announce your arrival in a room for the next few weeks, maybe a couple of months. Okay. So it's not forever, but when you go to the supermarket, when you arrive home, this song would play. So what would your choice be? I think it would be Hold Back the River by James Bay. It's one of my all-time favorites. Why would you Why would you choose that? They played this song a few years ago at my eldest son's graduation from secondary school, and it actually just made me cry. Lots of things make me cry, but it made me cry because it reminded me of all the things we want to do, that they're just not possible. And um, I often think it's, I often get this idea that we're searching for these things that we just can't find. And a lot of them are here anyway, you know, but like holding back the river is just an impossible task, but just slow down, slow down. Mm. And let's look, let's look inwardly because, you know, here you are, here we are and just pause love it pause get curious mm. and have a look yeah step inside yourself for a minute beautiful thank you sarah that's it part two of three in the bag thanks so much to sarah for being frankly a legend next week we reach the dramatic climax where we talk about sarah's book that she co-wrote with lisa Coyne tired of anxiety. A big thanks to my producer Emma, it's a joy to have you on board and we'd love to get your reviews and you can send them on the socials or even on WhatsApp. We're that modern. All the details are in the show notes. If you like this episode of the podcast, please could you do three things. Number one, share it with one other person. Number two, subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review, whatever platform you're on and particularly if you're on Apple Podcasts. The Apple charts are really important in the podcast industry. And number three, share the heck out of it on the socials. This will all help us reach more people with stuff that could be useful. 
I love to hear from you and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and Alex Engelberg for his vocals. Most of all, dear listener, thanks to you. Look after yourselves, peace supers, and bye for now. And then we'll talk about your book. Okay, cool. Oh my God, I got quite emotional reading it at times because I was thinking, flipping heck, if I'd had this when I was a child, how amazing it would be to to read this with my mum. It was just like, touched me. Thanks for saying that.